Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Well, welcome everybody to this uh, holiday edition of Surety Today. What makes it a holiday edition, you ask? Well, simply because it's during the holidays. And Justin and uh, Rich and I and everyone at the uh, Wright Constable and Skeen Surety Law Group wish uh, everyone on the call and all of our podcast listeners and all of your uh, colleagues and family a very warm uh, and safe uh, holiday season and uh, a prosperous and safe New Year. So, as you know, my name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at Wright, Constable, and Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. And today I'm joined by my law partner, Rich Pledger, and our associate, Justin Thatch, from our Richmond, Virginia office. As always, we like to open up our episodes with a big thank you to everyone for your support of Surety today. We ask that you uh, pass along our contact information to any colleagues you think may be interested in calling in or checking out one of our podcasts. Remember... You can check out one of our uh, Surety Today episodes anytime from one of multiple locations on the uh, Surety Today page at our website, wcslaw.com, as a podcast at Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podbean. Just search for Surety Today and on our microsite at suretytoday.net. As always, we have muted the line during the presentation to avoid the background noise, and we will unmute the line at the end for any questions. Today we will be presenting on the topic of the effect of an incorporation by reference provision in the bond. Justin will get us started with a discussion of incorporation by reference, you know, in general, and then he'll talk about the the majority view, which generally holds that sureties are bound by the provisions of the incorporated document. Uh, I'll follow Justin with a discussion of the sort of minority view which generally holds that the surety may not necessarily be bound to the terms of the incorporated document. Uh, I will further discuss uh, briefly the importance of carefully looking at the language of the various provisions involved in the incorporation, as such language may impact the the effect of the incorporation. Finally, Rich will discuss incorporation of arbitration provisions and what courts do when there are conflicts between the terms of what is being incorporated in and the terms of the bond. Um, this topic was originally suggested by uh, one of the in-house counsels for a surety company, and we thank you for that suggestion. And I would ask uh, coming up for 2021, if anyone has any suggestions for a future topic, please let us know and we'll, uh, we'll try to take care of that. So right now I will turn it over to Justin. If, you're, if your line is muted, please unmute it. Thank you, Mike. I just went ahead and hit the uh, unmute button there. So hello to everyone out in podcast land. I hope everyone can hear me. Um, And thanks for being with us here today. Uh, So I have the pleasure of, I guess, kind of introducing our topic today of uh, this idea of incorporation by reference, um, which is generally a a part of of contract law and, and contract drafting um, in, in general, um, and it's, it, it can really happen in, in any kind of contract, but it is something that is quite common 
um, in the surety and construction industries because it is simply a way uh, for one party to a contract to uh, what I will call bootstrap the provisions or obligations of one contract uh, into another document or contract without having to relist everything out. Um, so again, you can think a few examples of that. Of course, the one we're going to talk about today of the bond incorporating um, an underlying contract, but you might also have a you know, a subcontract that incorporates the general contract that incorporates the general, et cetera, up and down the chain. So you may have one contract that essentially ties itself to maybe three, four other contracts. Um, so the key, of course, is to look out for that incorporation language. And it's usually pretty straightforward and not that difficult to find. Um, so I've found one example here uh, from a bond that says, quote, the contractor and the surety jointly and severally bind themselves, their heirs, executors, administrators, successors, and assigns to the owner for the performance of the construction contract, which is incorporated herein by reference. So a last little phrase there in the quote, um, incorporated herein by reference. But as we lawyers well know, it's one thing for the language of the contract to be there on the page. Often the more loaded question is what does the language mean and what does it impact? Um, it seems easy enough, but as you may imagine, it can beg a lot of questions, um, which gets us to the main question of today is what is the impact of incorporating one contract into another, and in our case, incorporating a bonded contract into a bond? So moving now to the majority view on this, the first big question for any surety should be, if my bond incorporates the underlying contract, am I bound by the terms and provisions of that underlying contract? Well, in the majority of jurisdictions and courts, the, generally the answer is yes. The surety is bound by the provisions of the incorporated documents. Now, Mike and Rich will later discuss how maybe in some instances that may or may not be the case, uh, or, like many legal questions out there, the answer is just simply a bit more complicated. Uh, but now what I'm going to do is just highlight uh, two cases uh, that kind of show this general view in action. Um, the first one is a case from out in California uh, called Pacific Employers Insurance Company versus City of Berkeley. Um, and this is a case where we had a surety that um, uh, the, the principal defaulted and, and was kicked off the job, and the surety ended up actually tendering a, a completion contractor. Um, but really what the issue was here is in the end, when the time came to kind of work out all the final payment, the city sought to um, offset uh, some liquidated damages of $250 a day that were recoverable by the city under the underlying contract. Uh, there was nothing specifically in the bond that made uh, the surety liable for uh, the liquidated uh, damages, but it was a provision in the underlying contract that made the principal responsible for them. So the surety argued that they weren't on the hook for the LDs. Um, and of course here the bond did expressly incorporate the contract by reference. Uh, so because of that, the court concluded, and this is quote, we find that the bond given by the surety would expressly refer to the contract between the principal and the obligee incorporated that contract by reference and that the surety was therefore bound by the provisions in the contract for liquidated damages. So there you go. That kind of sums it up right there um, with the court saying that 
because the uh, contract was incorporated by reference into the bond uh, and the LD's provision was a clear provision of that underlying contract that the surety uh, was responsible uh, for the LDs and the court upheld the city's offset. Uh, one thing to keep in mind uh, and is common what you see in a lot of these cases and, and some of you may be familiar with this, but courts often like to refer to in these opinions um, uh, reading the, the contract uh, and the bond kind of together as one or an attempt to try to kind of give um, effect to everything in both. Uh, these general concepts of, you know, the, the bond is in place to secure the contract and, and various kind of uh, discussion along that line. Um, something that you will probably hear more from, from Rich and Mike later on, but it is just something to keep in mind that in a kind of applying the general rule, uh, that's kind of one of the spirits that the courts use to kind of base that on, which is um, we're going to try to read a bond and a contract together, and when a bond incorporates said contract, that because of that, we're often going to look to apply the provisions therein. Um, so for the, the, the second case I want to talk about, though, is that it's actually not all bad uh, for the sureties, because occasionally you may find a provision in an underlying contract that actually works for the surety's benefit. Um, and one example from this is the case uh, from Florida. This is a CC Aventura Inc. versus White's Company LLC. Um, and this was a case at the federal court in Florida that ultimately went up uh, to the 11th Circuit. But uh, this was a case here where um, a general contractor uh, went ahead and terminated uh, its subcontractor. Uh, now, um, rather than go ahead and what it decided to do was, was go ahead and complete the contract on its own um, without getting the surety uh, involved. Um, the problem with that, though, is that the subcontract had a provision that said um, that if the general contractor wanted to terminate the subcontractor and go ahead and complete the work on its own, that it had to give the surety notice. So while this wasn't a specific, again, this, there was not this specific provision in the bond, but we have a case here where, again, the, the underlying contract said, well, if you want to go ahead and do that and complete the work, uh, general contractor, you have to give the surety notice before you do that. So what happened was the GC did went ahead and complete the work and went and made its claim against the bond, and the surety said, well, um, too bad, so sad, our bond incorporates the contract by reference and um, you didn't comply with the underlying provision that required you to give us notice of the termination of the underlying contractor. And both the Federal District Court in Florida and the 11th Circuit uh, sided with the surety on that and said, yes, indeed, because this uh, notice provision from the underlying contract was incorporated up into the bond the surety was not on the hook uh, to pay in that instance because the general contractor failed to give the surety notice uh, of the, the underlying uh, termination of the principal. So those are just, again, two kind of quick cases highlighting the general rule that uh, the provisions of an underlying contract that will be incorporated into the bond and that they can work both for and against the surety. 
So uh, I will now turn it over to Mike, who will go ahead and discuss um, the minority view, among other things. Mike? Okay, thanks, Justin. So what was it, so bad, so sad? <laughs> Good phrase. The so-called uh, minority view looks at incorporation by reference much more literally and tends to follow a more strict construction of, uh, of contract law. So surety bonds, of course, are contracts and should be construed like other contracts. A fundamental principle of contract interpretation is to ascertain and effectuate the intention of the parties. The primary source for determining the intention of the parties is the language of the bond or contract itself. Under the objective of law of contracts, the court must, as its first step, determine from the language of the agreement what a reasonable person, quote unquote, in the position of the parties would have meant at the time the agreement was effectuated. In such a case, the, the true test of what is meant is not what the parties to the contract intended it to mean, but rather what a reasonable person in the position of the parties would have thought it meant. Now, you got to take a second and, and digest that because basically the objective view of contract says, look, we don't care what you two parties entering into the contract thought. We, we're going to imagine what a reasonable person would have thought. And so that's how the contract gets interpreted. So the clear and unambiguous language of an agreement will not give way to what the parties thought the agreement meant or intended it to mean. Where the language of a contract is clear, there's no room for construction. It must be presumed that the parties meant what they expressed. So under the minority view, even if an earlier document is incorporated by reference into a bond, such incorporation simply means that the earlier document is made a part of the second document as if it was set forth therein. But absent an indication of a contrary intention, the incorporation of one contract into another contract involving different parties does not automatically transform the incorporated document into an agreement between the parties to the second contract. So, where you got a bond and the bond incorporates the underlying construction contract by reference, the surety does not become a party to that underlying contract with the obligee, right? Surety doesn't have to show up at the progress meetings. It doesn't have to submit uh, reports and a certificate of insurance. It doesn't have to do any number of a million things that are in a contract because it's not a party to that contract, um, technically. So. An example of this sort of a minority position and this, this contract interpretation approach that some courts take um, is, is found in the case of Hartford Accident and Indemnity Company versus Scarlet Harbor Associates Limited Partnership. And this is a case out of Maryland and was actually uh, ruled on by the Maryland Lower Appellate Court, the Court of Special Appeals, and then was taken up on cert uh, by Maryland's highest court, the Court of Appeals. And, and so let's talk about that case. The council of, of unit owners of a condominium filed suit against the developers and then developers filed third party complaints against a number of other parties, including the surety of one of those parties. The surety sought to compel arbitration of the claims of the developer through an arbitration clause in the underlying bonded subcontract. That was, uh, and, and, that, and that was incorporated into the bond. In denying the surety's demand for arbitration, the appellate court stated, in our view, the subcontract was incorporated simply to establish the primary obligation on which the surety's secondary obligation would depend. The bond made the principal's non-performance of the subcontract a condition for the surety's liability. 
If the principal failed to perform promptly and faithfully, then the surety was obligated under the bond. If, on the other hand, the principal performed, then there was no obligation. Thus, the Scarlet uh, Harbor Court found that the surety was not a party to the arbitration provision in the bonded subcontract simply because of the incorporation by reference, and, it, and the surety could therefore not compel the arbitration. Moreover, the court noted that the bond actually indicated an intention to litigate disputes. Specifically, the bond had an express provision covering the institution of litigation. The court noted that the litigation provision in the bond had to be enforced, otherwise it would have the effect of reading the provision out of the bond. Such a construction would conflict with the settled principle that a contract should not be interpreted in a manner uh, in which a meaningful part of the agreement would be disregarded. In Couch Cyclopedia on Insurance, the author notes that, you know, ordinarily the surety bond will be interpreted in light of the contract, the performance of which is secured by the bond. The use of an express incorporation by reference clause is therefore more of a matter of caution to make certain that the bond will be so construed. On certiare in the Scarlet Harbor case, the Court of Appeals uh, affirmed the lower court and stated that by incorporating into the bond the instant matter, the contract that contains the developer's promise to arbitrate with the contractor, the surety literally has incorporated as to the developer only the developer's promise to ar arbitrate with the contractor. The bond does not by its express terms uh, enlarge any of the obligations of the developer. And even if the surety and the principal had tried to enlarge the obligations of the developer in the bond, that wouldn't really have any effect because the obligee is not a party to is not a party or a signatory to the bond. So in Maryland, the minority view is that yes, the incorporation brings in the other document into the bond, but it does so for purposes of defining what the surety's obligation is in terms of completing the work. It doesn't make the surety a party to all of the other provisions in the agreement, such as an arbitration provision. So the research in this area reveals too that you need to carefully review the terms of the applicable provisions to determine what effect they are intended to have. In other words, what a reasonable person, quote unquote, would have intended. Rich will get into this in more detail in his discussion uh, in a little bit, but when you're looking at this issue, be cognizant of whether the clauses involved are permissive or mandatory. So thus the difference between may or shall. Is the litigation clause in the bond, for example, really just a statute of limitations? Or is it advising that, you know, that all disputes have to be litigated? There's a difference between those two, and there's a difference in how the court will interpret that. Is the provision limited to just the principal and the obligee, such that the principal and the obligee agree to arbitra arbitrate between them? Or is the arbitration provision regarding any and all disputes that may arise out of the contracts, in which case, a broad provision like that can draw in um, into its net, you know, a surety. So you got to pay careful attention to the terms uh, of these provisions as well as the incorporation clause itself. There's one case um, out of the Supreme Court of Missouri, um, 2003, Dunn um, Industrial Group, Inc. versus City of Sugar Creek. And there the court drew a distinction between documents merely referenced and documents incorporated by reference. In that case, the, there was a guarantee agreement which referenced the underlying construction contract, and the contract was actually attached to the guarantee agreement. And the guarantee agreement provided that the 
guarantor guarantees prompt and satisfactory performance of the attachment contract. Um, however, the guarantee document did not incorporate by reference the construction contract. And the court held that mere reference to a construction contract in the guarantee is insufficient to establish that the guarantor bound itself to an arbitration provision in that construction contract. So you've got to, you've really got to pay attention. There was another case where there was, um, there was the ability to consent or not, and the surety had stepped into the shoes of the party uh, who had the ability to consent or not, and, and the court held that if the surety didn't consent, then under the provision, it couldn't be held to, to arbitrate. So, Rich, uh, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you, Mike. Uh, I will be briefly commenting on arbitration provisions and the surety's right to perform versus the obligee's right to cure. However, keep in mind, these aren't the only areas where incorporation by reference may come into play. Uh, the incorporation by reference clauses can have a significant impact on the surety's rights, including arbitration, surety's rights uh, to perform versus the obligee's right to cure, as well as delay damages, notice provisions, limitation periods, jurisdiction and venue, and the obligee's right to recover attorney's fees, costs, and expenses. So, and there are probably many more. Now, while the majority approach still appears to be that the language of the bond should be interpreted strictly, that may be some lip service, that approach is tempered by other considerations, which often depend upon the precise language of the provisions at issue and the jurisdictions involved, and the court's efforts to harmonize the language of the bonded contract and the bond. In most jurisdictions, whether the surety is bound by an arbitration provision in a bonded contract is highly dependent upon the language in the bond and the underlying contract. First, there is a question of whether the arbitration clause is itself arbitrable. Often, a contract will incorporate the rules of the American Arbitration Association, and while there is a liberal federal policy favoring arbitration agreements, that policy does not necessarily apply to the alleged agreements to arbitrate arbitrality. There must be clear and unmistakable evidence that such a clause must be arbitrated. Second, parties to a dispute cannot be forced to arbitrate absent a written agreement to do so. Whether non-parties to a contract contain an arbitration clause can be forced to arbitrate is subject to ordinary state law principles that govern the formation of contracts. The most common state law principle is the doctrine of incorporation by reference. Now, most courts presented with an incorporation clause in a bond, coupled with a broad contractual arbitration provision, have found sufficient evidence of an agreement compelling the surety to arbitrate all disputes under the bond. In U.S. Surety Company versus Hanover RS Limited Partnership out of North Carolina, the court found that the language of the bonded contract calling for arbitration of any dispute arising out of or relating to this agreement required to submit all the arbitration of all matters in dispute. The court was not persuaded by the surety's argument that its unique surety defenses arose under the bond and not the bonded agreement, because the arbitration clause was expansive enough to include disputes having a significant relationship to the bonded agreement. It made no difference to the court whether the surety defenses technically arose under the bond or the bonded contract. On the other hand, some courts have found that the particular language of the bonded contract when read in conjunction with the bond did not require arbitration of disputes involving the surety. In Agro-Oils versus National Union Fire Insurance from the Eighth Circuit, the surety sought to compel arbitration with the obligee based upon language in the bonded contract stating 
any controversy or claim arising out of or related to the contract or the breach thereof shall be settled by arbitration. The bond did not speak to uh, arbitration, but provided that, quote, any proceeding legal or equitable, unquote, under this bond may be instituted in any court of competent jurisdiction. The court found that the bonds incorporation clause reflected no intent by the obligee and the surety to arbitrate their disputes and because the bond permitted suit to be brought in a court. Two more recent decisions found that surety was not compelled to arbitrate its dispute with the obligee. In Schneider Electric Buildings uh, versus Western Surety in Maryland, the court found that the purpose of the bonded contract was for the performance of work by the principal and that the surety's obligation to perform under the bond should be construed with that purpose in mind. The arbitration clause was nothing more than an enforcement mechanism which may never come into play. The bond also indicated an intent to litigate disputes in court. The decision in Western Surety Company versus U.S. Engineering, a case in which I was involved and recommended the surety reject the obligee's demand to arbitrate, turned not on public policy considerations, but on the precise language used by the principal and the obligee in the bonded contract. The arbitration clause provided that any controversy or claim of contractor against subcontractor or subcontractor against contractor shall be resolved by arbitration. This language was not evidence of the surety's agreement to arbitrate because it encompassed only controversies or claims specifically between the principal and the obligee. And like Schneider and Agro, the court also cited the familiar concept that the bonded contract must be read together, could not avoid the fact that the bond permitted any legal proceeding to be brought in a court. The importance of the forum and applicable state law cannot be overstated when it comes to the enforceability of an arbitration agreement against a performance bond surety. In four separate cases, and I call them the developer surety versus Carruthers construction cases, in which I was tangentially involved, all employed the same contract, the same bond, the same obligee, and the same surety, but were interpreted by four different federal district courts with varying results. The bonded subcontracts provided in part that all claims, disputes, and other matters in controversy between the contractor and the subcontractor arising out of or relating to the subcontract shall be decided by binding arbitration. This clause was similar to the arbitration clause in U.S. Engineering and, as in that case, the federal district courts in Connecticut, Georgia, and Kansas found that the use of the particular terms contractor and subcontractor precluded a reading that would force the surety to arbitrate. The U.S. District Court in South Carolina, however, applied general concepts under South Carolina law that one, the surety's liability is measured by the liability of its principal, and two, the bond and the bonded contract must be construed together as a whole and ruled that the surety was required to arbitrate. So it appears that the majority rule, followed by the first, second, fifth, 6th and 11th circuits is that a surety is bound to arbitrate disputes if the bond incorporates by reference a contract containing a mandatory arbitration provision. In other circuits, it appears that a surety does not obligate itself to perform all of the principal's obligations, absent an express assumption of those obligations. As an aside, I note that in Moore Brothers Co Company versus Brown and Root out of the 4th Circuit back in 2000, the court refused to allow a surety to assert the pay-when-paid defense in its principal's contract when even though the bond had an incorporation by reference clause on the grounds that the bond did not specifically incorporate that provision itself. 
my sense is that that was really a public policy issue involving a Miller Act bond, uh, but I thought it was notable. Um, let me turn very quickly to the obligee's right to cure versus the surety's right to perform, and I'm going to have to cut some of this short. A bonded contract between the obligee and the principal will often provide the obligee with the right to cure and supplement the principal's work. On the other hand, the performance bond often provides specific rights to the surety. As we all know, the A312 bonds, the surety is entitled to perform its principal's obligations under the bonded contract subject to the occurrence of several conditions precedent. In international fidelity versus uh, moriarty out of Florida, the obligee knew that the surety was conducting an investigation without notice to the surety and without a material response to the surety's inquiries, it hired a replacement con subcontractor, terminated the principal, and asserted a claim against the bond. The obligee relied on its rights on the bonded subcontract in arguing that it had a right to supplement and cure the principal's default upon three days written notice. According to the obligee, the terms of the subcontract modified the terms of the bond. The court disagreed, finding that under Florida law, the terms of the two documents had to be harmonized to the extent possible. While the obligee was certainly within its rights to terminate the contract after three days, it also had to follow the notice provisions in the bond. The district court appeared to take the position that the bond takes precedence over the bonded contract when it held, although an obligee may have had a right uh, over the subcontract, under the subcontract to hire a replacement subcontractor, it did not have the right to do so without first allowing the surety an opportunity to exercise its rights under the performance bond. Uh, there's an interesting case, uh, Fidelity and Deposit Company versus uh, Jefferson County Commission out of uh, Alabama from 2010. There the court ruled that the obligee's right to complete the principal's work was subject to any prior rights of the surety and under the bond, the surety's right to take over the project and directly assume the principal's underlying contractual obligation was such a prior right. Other courts uh, have found that the obligee's contractual right to complete allows it to do so in derogation of the surety's options for performance under the bond. There's a case from, uh, from Georgia, uh, commercial casualty versus Mar Trade uh, Center Builders the bonded subcontract allowed the obligee to default, uh, supplement the principal's work within 48 hours without the necessity of declaring a default. The court seized on the fact that the bond explicitly only addressed the scenario where the default had been declared, noting that the subcontract, on the other hand, contains only a 48-hour notice requirement to the subcontractor in the event the contractor decides to supplement or decides to declare the subcontractor in default, but it provided no provision about providing notice to the surety. The court viewed the bond as silent with no default, had been declared, it perceived no conflict between the bond and the bonded contract, and held that the obligee had no duty to give notice to the surety before supplementing its work. A couple takeaways for surety practitioners in light of some of these decisions, courts will normally do their best to reconcile the language of the contract and the bond whenever possible, if an interpretation can be advanced that gives effect to both, e.g. harmonizing them, even if it uh, seems unrealistic in light of the circumstances, the court will often take such an approach. Second, as always, the surety should maintain an open line of communication with the complaining obligee in writing wherever possible. Conversely, and depending upon the language of the bond, the surety should not assume that the obligee has a concomitant duty to stay in touch. If the obligee refuses to allow a particular type of performance, the surety should document the reasons why or if efforts to find the reason. 
Finally, sureties should be wary of relying on rules of construction reporting to favor sureties as a matter of law because the court may very well ignore those rules if it's persuaded by equitable consideration. That's it, uh, Michael. Uh, I turn it over to you. Okay, thanks, Rich uh, and Justin. So before I open up the line for any questions, I want to, uh, again, let everyone know that the next edition of Surety Today will be Monday, January 11th at 1230. Again, uh, thanks so much for joining us, and we wish everyone uh, happy holidays and a safe and uh, happy new year. Let me open up the line. The conference is now in talk mode. Okay, any questions? Hi, this is Larry Jortner. Hi, Larry. Um, I, hi, I have I, I have a question. Um, when when um, somebody uh, when when you're made an arbitration demand against um, on on uh, this based on the incorporation clause, um, what are the uh, rules as far as being bound if you don't go into the um, Clause. My understanding is that you're going to be bound anyway if if uh, you don't participate in the arbitration, uh, even if you have a right not to do so. Is that is that the law throughout the land, or are there exceptions? Yeah, there's well, there's well, exceptions. There's we did a we did a uh, we did a an addition not too long ago. I think it was Rich and I about the effect of judgments including arbitration awards, and it, it varies by jurisdiction as to whether it's uh, completely binding on, on a party that doesn't participate versus um, it, it being only prima facie uh, on a party. Uh, so there's different, um, different um, outcomes of that. But the question is, you know, if you're a direct party and you're, you know, your demand to be arbitrated, you've got to respond to that and establish why uh, the demand should be should be quashed or or dismissed um, because you don't want to be in in a situation where there's a default and then arguing well you know uh, I didn't I wasn't I wasn't obligated to to arbitrate so um, it, okay. it, it it varies it varies by different um, uh, there's different things that the courts look at your your knowledge of the proceeding your ability to participate and those kinds of things so it gets it gets pretty murky, and um, I would not, you know, I would not take the chance of letting a default uh, or an arbitration award be be entered without litigating the issue. Thank you, yeah, Larry. Larry, this is Rich Pledger too. In in uh, in the U.S. engineering case, we had both that the issue of arbitration and the surety's right to perform versus the surety versus the uh, obligee's right to to supplement, and in that case, you know, 10 months uh, before the first communication to the surety of uh, default issues, uh, U.S. Engineering went ahead and completed the contract, and then they gave notice and said, by the way, pay. Now, we got into a lot of litigation over that, but also they asked that we uh, arbitrate, and they had already filed an arbit. Uh, I think it was the ob the principal filed an arbitration demand against U.S. Engineering, and U.S. Engineering tried to bring in uh, the surety, and uh, we contested that, and we did so not only by trying to speak reason, <laughs> uh, which didn't go over very well, 
But uh, we filed the uh, a deck action in the U.S. District Court in D.C. and uh, prevailed on that mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's a case where they violated the bond and uh, conditioned precedence to it and wanted to benefit where they wanted to benefit to get an arbitration clause. So that's that's a little bit different. But thank you. That's interesting. Yeah. Rich, this is Dan Oldenkamp. Uh, Is incorporation by reference key key words or can you more casually incorporate something by reference without those words? That's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> uh, I've, I've, I've read a case seen it with, in, doing the research, in doing the research. I read a case where there are jurisdictions that will will read together documents that relate to each other. Uh, in particular, if they're sort of simultaneously executed, they'll do that. But there are some courts that that don't even require you know that there be an incorporation by reference. It, they will automatically do that if the documents are, are related to each other in a, in a transaction. But then it gets back to the issue of, you know, what, what kind of jurisdiction are you in? Are you in one that's, that's following the majority view, which all you have to do is hint at incorporation and you're, you know, you're, you're bound by everything. And then there's other courts that are more uh, circumscribed about it and they're gonna be looking at the language that's used and whether or not there's an intent to, um, you know, to, to be bound to the under. Rich, what are your thoughts? Not, I think you handled it well. <laughs> My experience has really been only in the incorporation by reference clause. Uh, I do remember having a case where uh, we were before uh, Judge Payne in the U.S. District Court in the Eastern District of Virginia, and um, the judge asked me, you know, what's really at issue here? And I said, well, Judge, she's, she's trying to incorporate language of another contract, which has nothing to do with uh, – this case, and there's no incorporation of uh, uh, by reference clause. And he looked at me and says, they can't do that. And I said, well, judge, that's what I told them, but he won't listen. <laughs> so, <laughs> thanks, guys. All right, well, thank you, everybody, uh, for tuning in, and we'll uh, talk to you in January. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.